1: You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this Radio Show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Murray.
2: Good evening, Lloyd. Well, tonight we have a hero, a real hero for victims of any kind of crime, and he comes to us all the way from Washington, D.C. I want to introduce my audience to Jeff Dion, who is the director of the National Crime Victim Bar Association. He has championed crime victims' rights for more than two decades. Jeff began advocating for victims back in 1982 when his own 23-year-old sister, Paulette, was murdered by a serial killer. Only 14 years old himself, Jeff pressed the police for information on his sister's case, and after it was solved, he decided to pursue a career in law to help other victims. And in fact, in honor of his sister's memory, Jeff lobbied the Virginia General Assembly, resulting in 13 victims' rights bills being enacted into law. And these statutes establish a victim's right to be present in the courtroom, the right to oral impact testimony at sentencing, the right to confer with the prosecutor, a civil cause of action for stalking, And he expanded civil statute of limitations for victims and an expanded legal definition of victims. So he has been such an incredible hero. He has done so much more that I could tell you forever. But but basically, in 1998, he joined the staff of the National Center for Victims of Crime, where he is currently serving as the director of the National Victims Bar Association. And in that capacity, he lectures throughout the country, to foster greater communication and understanding among crime victims and trial attorneys. And he trains victim advocates in application of civil litigation and instructs fellow attorneys in crime victim ass- issues and services. He's just done so much great work. I could go on and on, but you can find out much more about him, not only at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, but also at n cvc.org. Thank you, Jeff, so much for joining us all the way from D.C.
3: Thanks, Mari. It's great to be with you.
2: Well, let's talk about what exactly is, what what do you do with victims?
3: Well, uh, here at the National Center for Victims of Crime, we get calls from victims all over the country looking uh, for assistance, and we can refer them to services that are available in their area, whether they need a rape crisis center, a battered women's shelter, a support group, advocacy within the criminal system, or if they need civil legal services. And uh, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which I run, is made up of attorneys all over the country who devote some portion of their practice to representing crime victims in civil lawsuits. And we can connect victims with attorneys, and then we also provide attorneys with the resources and information they need to be able to, to do a good job representing those victims. And we also do an awful lot of training to help people understand how the civil justice system can help victims as well.
2: Now, I know you deal with victims of white-collar crime as well as victims of violent crime. How is it different between the victims of white collar crime and the victims of, uh, you know, some kind of burglary or rape or how do they get treated differently within the system?
3: Well, I think that oftentimes uh, people within the criminal justice system might minimize the impact uh, that a victim of white collar crime or fraud experiences, uh, because they'll say, well, you just lost your money, and they oftentimes don't recognize the huge impact that that can have. I've always said that uh, the, there are differences in the experiences of white-collar crime victims and violent crime victims, but they are every bit as significant. I'm a homicide survivor. My sister was murdered. Um, I was um, a survivor of child sexual abuse, and I've dealt with all of that, but I've got a pretty good life. I've got a job, and I've got a family, and things are going well. Uh, but I've seen people who have lost their entire life savings uh, through financial fraud and white-collar crime and identity theft, and that affects how they live their life every day. It can affect where they live, what they eat, what they wear, and so their results of their victimization is something that they live with every day in a very uh, in a very real and practical way. So there, it's it has a huge impact.
2: What about restitution? Um, people realize that when you when you're a crime victim, you may have all sorts of losses. For example, if you were maimed, you might have to go through all sorts of different, uh, operations, etc. What a, a lot of people aren't aware of the concept of restitution. Could you explain that a little bit?
3: Sure. Restitution is something that takes place within the criminal justice system. And where at the time of sentencing, a judge can require the, uh, convicted defendant to pay the victim, uh, money to compensate them for their losses resulting from the crime. And the problem is is that restitution varies from state to state because this usually happens in state court and it's governed by state law and there is a great discrepancy uh, among the states about how they order restitution about how restitution is tracked and enforced but restitution is very important for victims and we've also found that for that offenders who pay their restitution have a much lower recidivism rate than uh, offenders who just pay their court costs. So there's something unique and something um, rehabilitative about paying restitution and realizing that your actions have had an impact on someone else. One of the drawbacks of restitution, though, is if someone isn't arrested and prosecuted for the crime, then you're not gonna get restitution. If someone is not convicted, you're not gonna get restitution. And even if you do get restitution, sometimes there's no guarantee that you'll actually be able to collect it. So we need to do more, but it's an important part of the system. And there's two other ways that uh, crime victims can receive can, uh, receive compensation for the damages that they suffer. One is the crime victim compensation program that's available in every state. And it's similar to restitution, but it's where the state acts as sort of creates a social safety net for crime victims, and they will pay some of the victims' out-of-pocket expenses for um, uh, regardless of whether or not a, someone has been, the criminal's been caught or prosecuted, that they're just there to help. But unfortunately, in most states, uh, they limit those benefits to medical expenses. Mental health counseling, funeral expenses, property damage, and property loss is usually not covered. Um, And then the third way that victims uh, can be compensated is by filing civil lawsuits. Um, Restitution, when it's ordered in a criminal case, will cover a victim's out of pocket expenses, but it won't recognize any of the other uh, pain and suffering or emotional distress or trauma that a victim goes through in having to. uh, regain their credit or the, the uh, trouble that they've been through as a result of the crime. And that can be recognized in civil cases. So those three programs together um, offer the best chance that at least one of them should be able to help uh, a victim of financial fraud.
2: Right. And and even for emotional distress, you, you can't get any restitution from the courts. But if you are able to file a lawsuit... I'll tell you the interesting thing that happened to me many, many years ago in 1996. I was a victim of identity theft, and I was able to help find my perpetrator. And I also wrote a letter and had my out-of-pocket costs, et cetera, et cetera. And I was awarded restitution, but we I think I got one check. I mean, she, she went to jail. She wasn't able to pay. Then she was out on a work furlough program, and she wasn't able to pay. And then, of course, she committed more identity theft. So, you know, restitution, although I think the concept is great, if your perpetrator goes to jail, you may not get it unless they have some kind of an estate. Isn't that true?
3: That's, that's absolutely correct. And uh, it can be difficult uh, to collect Uh, from someone that's gone to jail. And sometimes it might be difficult to get an attorney who's interested in taking that case uh, because they're only going to get paid usually from the proceeds of the case. And if if they're not going to be able to collect, most attorneys in a practical sense don't want to spend the next 20 years chasing down a judgment. And oftentimes, that's why we will look to other people who may have allowed that identity theft uh, or financial fraud to occur, who wasn't paying attention or who maybe hired someone uh, to uh, work for them that was going to have access to people's personal information, but didn't do a background check on them. If the person who stole your identity after they got out of prison was uh, committing more identity theft uh, if the if they got that in, information through their employment and someone hired them and either didn't check or didn't care uh, that they had been convicted of identity theft, then that employer is now partly to blame because they're letting the fox guard the henhouse.
2: Right, negligent hiring. Or even if you find out that somebody stole your identity and you've been working, and and the person who stole your identity was working in a bank or working in the doctor's office, it might even be negligent supervision, right?
3: That's correct. How and uh, it depends. How is that person getting access uh, to the information? So often, one of it's the the real key. Uh, no matter what happens in identity theft, is really trying to figure out how did the identity thief get access to the information. And you've got to be able to prove that. You know, so many times you'll see in uh, the newspaper or here on the news that some big company has had their computer system hacked into. And then you might get a letter that says, um, there's been a breach of our computer security and your credit card information has been compromised. And we wanted to let you know this. Some people might say, well, does that mean I can sue now? Well, have you been a victim of identity theft? Has anything bad happened as a result of that? And if it did, you have to be able to show that that's how the identity thief got the information. Uh, but oftentimes, it's not high-tech. Oftentimes, it is, uh, it's is—it's your everyday, run-of-the-mill uh, uh, information that's floating around out there, whether it is a, uh, a waiter in a restaurant who copies down your credit card number, uh, when they take your check, or someone, as you said, that's working in a doctor's office. Uh, anytime you fill out a form that has your personal information and your social security number, you're at risk. And that's why we have to keep close tabs on anyone who has access to that information.
2: Exactly. Although so much of it is beyond our control, like what you were talking about. If, if a database has my social security number and all my information, and it's not encrypted and some dirty insider or somebody maybe sitting in a at a restaurant in in china (laughs) or somewhere else hacks it then that's totally beyond your control so there's a lot as a victim of identity theft that's really beyond your control you you won't even know if they're able to take it but uh that's that's a problem too
3: that's right and that's why the law recognizes that people who are in possession Of someone's personal information, they have a legal responsibility to take reasonable measures to safeguard it. And because once you put that in their hands, you can't control it anymore. And it's floating around out there. And how are they controlling that and controlling access to it? And if they fail to properly secure it, And someone else should get access to it. That's where they can be held liable. Not that they intentionally wanted to harm someone, but just they weren't as careful as they should have been. And that's what sort of created that atmosphere of opportunity for the uh, identity theft to occur.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So what do you do for victims of identity theft at the National Crime uh, Victim Bar Association? How do you refer them?
3: Well, um, we have attorney members all over the country, and they will they fill out a very detailed referral questionnaire that tells us about the types of cases they take, what are the areas they practice in, so that when we talk to a victim, we can match them up with someone who has expertise in this area. And, you know, identity theft is a, is a relatively new crime. And uh, just as it takes a little while for the criminal law to catch up with the criminal activity... Uh, usually, the civil law lags even a little further behind the criminal law, and so while they, we were putting a lot of uh, criminal penalties in place for identity theft when uh, we saw that this was being a problem, and now every state has a law against a criminal law against identity theft, and it can even be a federal crime, uh, it was a little while before we could see you know what how do we figure out the civil liability for this and that's one of the important things that we've done for attorneys so when they look at this case we've thought about it we've done the research and say this is something we're seeing more and more and we can give you some examples and for the longest time you know when you have when you're talking about attorneys taking on a civil lawsuit the question is often well one what is this case worth and two who is it that's responsible that's going to pay for this? And the, it was very difficult to put a value on these cases for a long time because we'd think, you know, what, what's it worth to have your credit ruined? Uh, and, uh, and that is very important. But we've seen enough cases come out now that we've been able to do that. There was one case uh, that was a, a group of 911 operators in Detroit were members of their local union. And the union had all of their personal information, their Social Security number, uh, their annual income, and, uh, the, but the union president would take this information home to quote-unquote work on it. And the union board said, you know, we don't think that's a good idea, but they never exactly told her she couldn't do it. And then coincidentally, the union president's daughter was found to be in possession of a number of credit cards that were issued in the names of union members. So she had taken their information and applied for credit cards uh, in their name. And so these victims of identity theft sued the, uh, sued the union. And this was in Michigan, and the the good thing about that court opinion was that the uh, the court Detailed what these victims' damages were. And that was good because they had what I would call your average run of the mill identity theft damages. They said that it took them, on average, about 40 hours a piece of writing letters and making phone calls, trying to get it straightened out, that they were angry, they were embarrassed, they couldn't get credit, couldn't buy a car, couldn't get a loan for a house. And uh, these were the problems they had as a result of that. And the court recognized that those damages had real value. There were about 12 uh, victims in that case that sued together, and the court awarded about $270,000 to them in total. So it said that even those those uh, types of damages, which we would say are very common, do have a real monetary value. And that was important for attorneys to understand that. And we helped them figure out that, yes, these can be good cases. And the other question was, well, who is it that's going to Uh, that is going to pay these damages. In that case, it was the union that didn't protect someone's personal information. It could be anybody. It could be a, um, uh, a retailer. That you have a credit card with and their system was hacked into, or uh, someone else, a uh, your doctor's office, if someone who was working for them had access to your information and they were uh, making a copy of it and using it uh, themselves. So, anyone who doesn't protect your information could be liable, just like uh, someone if uh, you go to a business and they don't have proper security or lights in the parking lot, or uh, you stay at a hotel room and the the lock on the door is broken. If something happens to you and that security measure failed or didn't work or wasn't put in place, they could be liable. The other group that we're seeing a liability with is banks. Because as you know, Mari, a lot of times what happens with identity theft, uh, while the vast majority is is credit card uh, fraud, there are a lot of people who will go to a bank and open up a checking account in someone else's name. And then they start writing checks Right. And then they start bouncing checks. And then the victim gets a notice in the mail that they're bouncing checks. And the victim says, wait a minute, I don't even have an account at that bank. And then they go to the bank and they say, this isn't me. Shut down this account. And the bank drags their feet and doesn't do it. And, but the identity thief continues to bounce checks. And what we've seen on numerous occasions is that the victim is then arrested and prosecuted for writing bad checks. And in many of those cases, we've seen uh, court opinions that have said the uh, the bank is responsible uh, because they're not following their own procedures, they're not closing accounts when they're supposed to. They're not notifying the merchants that this person is a victim of identity theft, um, and people are actually being arrested and hauled off to jail uh, as a result of that and even if your your the charges are dismissed. Um, there's still something tremendously traumatic about being an innocent person and you're arrested and you're sent uh, to jail for no matter how long uh, when it wasn't your fault. And in those circumstances, we're seeing that banks are being held accountable because they're falling asleep at the switch.
2: You know, Jeff, when you're talking about these kinds of records that are made that's an arrest record is made – Or even a conviction record is made that somebody you know has so many problems with identity theft. What about the fact that you can't even clean up these records? That that background checks are sold, and so many resellers of these background checks have erroneous information. This could affect you the rest of your life. Isn't that true? It
3: absolutely can. And. Once the, uh, the information changes hands and it gets out, it's sort of like once you get something out on the Internet and it starts to go viral, how do you, you, know, how do you try and put the genie back in the bottle? And it's very difficult. And so when, uh, if someone is a victim of identity theft, the first thing they want to do is make sure that there is a, a fraud alert that's attached to their credit report. Many things are going to be based on people's credit reports. And credit reporting agencies uh, under federal law have an obligation to put an annotation on someone's credit report if there's an allegation of identity theft. And if they don't do that, um, they can be held liable under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And so that's the first step you want to take. Then, the
2: other And, and let's go a little bit further that if, they're, if they know there's a fraudster out there that's doing this, they can even put on a security freeze – and that security freeze actually freezes up their credit so that no new creditor can even get that report. If, if your fraudster is applying for new credit, they can't even get the report without you providing a password. And so now, even if you live in a state that has not passed that law, the credit bureaus are allowing you to do that. So that's, that's a way to kind of lock up your credit for new creditors.
3: That's right. And once you know the problem's happening, that's something that you can do to mitigate the damages and try and keep it from getting worse.
2: Right, right. But what can you do about criminal identity theft? The, the good news is we have the Fair Credit Reporting Act that gives us some protocol as to how to clean up the mess. I think what's even scarier is when someone is committing crimes in your name, the, the only way that I think that you can even do that is with a background check, right? Right.
3: Yes, it, it, it is very problematic. Criminal identity theft happens when someone else commits a crime using your name or someone just commits a crime, and once they're arrested and they're asked for identification, they give them your name instead of theirs. And so now all of a sudden uh, you it looks like you've got a criminal record. And that can be a real problem. Uh, and But especially, particularly in California, they've set up a program uh, a pa- and a number of states have these passport programs, and they they're somewhat cumbersome, but it's really important to be able to go through this process where you have to go before a judge and prove that you were a victim of identity theft and you didn't do these things. And sometimes it's a matter of they take your fingerprints, they run it against the fingerprints of the person who gave your name when they were arrested, and they show that they don't match so we know this person who gave your name is not, in fact, you. And then once you can go into a registry uh, and you can carry a piece of paper with you and have a PIN number that if you get pulled over for running a red light and all of a sudden they run your license and they don't, uh, you don't want them to say, oh, well, you're wanted in six states for all these other things and they're going to haul you off to jail. Uh, and it can, be, it can be a cumbersome process to go through. But it's really very important, and we're trying to find better ways to protect people's identity and try and balance those interests between public safety and uh, having the wrong person be identified as a
2: criminal. Right. So if you get a Certificate of Innocence in California and you carry that in your wallet at all times, at least when you get stopped for you know, a headlight out or speeding or whatever it is, you're not going to be hauled off to jail. But it's still a problem because— we really need a federal law on that sets up a protocol like the Fair Credit Reporting Act as to what to do when you're a victim of criminal identity theft. I've helped so many victims of this, and each state is different, you know. they. they so if you live, for example, in D.C., but let's say, Jeff, that someone commits a crime in California using your name, you know, You're going to be better off in dealing with it in California. But what is the help? You know, what's the protocol in D.C. or what's the protocol if you live in New York? You know Uh, what I mean. That we need a federal law.
3: That's right. Or even if you live in a state that doesn't have a passport program, right? And and one thing that people should do um, is every once in a while you can check with the Social Security Administration and find out all of if anybody else is using your Social Security number, um, what, have, what jobs are people taking with this Social Security number? And if you see any jobs that don't belong to you, uh, then you know that someone else is using your Social Security number. And the sooner you can find out about it, the uh, easier it is to mitigate those damages and try and put a stop to it. And that's why everyone should uh, review their, their credit report uh, every year. And uh, also, if you have any suspicion that someone else might be using your Social Security number, check with the Social Security Administration and see if that's the case.
2: Right. You can you can get your yearly earnings uh, report and see if there's earnings on there that aren't yours. But, you know, we have so much other kind of identity theft, and I, I'm sure you guys get calls just like I do. We have such a thing as medical identity theft where someone is using – your social, and maybe they're even using your insurance number because they were able to get it, and they're getting medical benefits. And it, you can't just check uh, a credit report to see that unless someone is bill- getting billed and they're not paying the bill and then the bill ends up on your credit report as a collection. You know, But we have all of that kind of identity theft as well. Do you guys get calls about that kind of medical identity theft as well?
3: Certainly. We get calls, uh, and usually when we get those calls about medical identity theft, it's gone to the point where they found out about it and someone hasn't paid. Then victims usually find out when they start coming after them for payment. Um, it even And oftentimes it's difficult when uh, the person who is stealing your identity is a family member. Yes. And uh, because oftentimes they have, if they're living with you or they have access to your information, that... Uh, uh, a family member might apply for a credit card in your name or uh, or, get or, or even if you
2: get stopped. Yeah, I know I had a victim whose twin brother, there was the good twin and the bad twin, and the twin brother gave, when he was arrested for a DUI, gave his brother's name.
3: <laughs> We've even seen <laughs> cases where um, parents, estranged parents, have applied for student loans. Yes uh, on behalf of their children, and just pocketed the money and the next thing you know the the uh, student is working with their financial aid office, and they say, "No, you're maxed out on your loans and they'll say, "What are you talking about?" and they find out that uh, one of their parents has taken out student loans in their name, and uh, not only do they not get the benefit of it, but then uh, it, it's very difficult for the student to prove that I didn't get a benefit from this, and they have to pay those loans back.
2: Right. Sometimes you can prove it by the fact that maybe those loans were taken out when they were like six years old or something. Right. <laughs> you know, and they go, wait a minute, they couldn't have even done this. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. How about government uh, benefit identity theft when somebody gets workers' comp in your name or they get disability payments in your name? We've, we've had those kind of experiences, too, and there's, again, no protocol. How do you find out about that kind of stuff? You usually don't find out until uh, one guy called me from San Diego, who was um, who tried to get workers' comp when he was injured on the job, and then he found out that he couldn't get it because a guy in Orange County, California, was already receiving it using his social. So you know those are the kinds of things. How do we even find out about that kind of stuff? There is no central reporting agency that tells us about governmental benefits.
3: And that's true, but the other the, the flip side of that is the more that the information is centralized, then sometimes the easier it is for the information to become corrupted or fall into the wrong hands.
2: Exactly. Uh,
3: sometimes the uh, how the information is spread out. Can be a defense mechanism in keeping it from getting worse, uh, uh, but and so we have to balance those interests, and it's very difficult. Uh, like you said, people often don't find out about it until they go to use benefits and find out what do you mean these benefits have been used up. Right. But in those circumstances, if there was, if someone else was getting um, uh, workers' compensation benefits or or something like that, or medical then benefits, an employer yeah. Yeah. was taking that information and might not be verifying that information. And that, that other person's employer who helped facilitate that either knowingly or unknowingly might be liable if you're the person who's been damaged. And I think that's a real problem. I was just talking with um, a uh, U.S. attorney um, at a conference and we were talking about identity theft and he says, well, you know, it's, uh, the, it's difficult because oftentimes it's really the bank or the person or the, the agency or the credit card company that's lost money that's, that's deemed the victim. And it's like, yes, but if, the, if an individual person's credit has been harmed, if they've suffered harm as a direct result of that, they still count as a victim and may be entitled uh, to restitution. And so it's important that we recognize everybody that's a victim here. And that's another problem that that identity theft victims have with the system, that there might be some people in the criminal justice system who don't even recognize that they have standing or count as a victim of crime.
2: Exactly. And what's sad is, for example, the creditor who maybe is out the money, they can write it off as the cost of doing business. And they might have been the one that wasn't very careful in issuing the credit to begin with. So you know, the real victim of the crime is the one who has to live with it and whose reputation is ruined, and that's always the consumer victim.
3: That's it, right. And, which, you know, one call, a question that we often get: uh, victims will call us and say, "You know, I was a victim of identity theft, and I'm I'm trying to get it worked out, but these creditors are just, you know." calling me and they're harassing me to pay them should i just pay a little something you know as i fight this just to try and keep them off my back
2: oh god never
3: that's right (laughs) the answer is no because once you start making payments on a debt that isn't yours you could assume responsibility for that and but there's uh there's so much pressure uh uh, that that are that's put on people uh, from uh, collections agencies that they're desperate. you know what can I do to try and make this go away? Uh, but that's definitely not the path you want to take.
2: no, it's not the easy way out, and I even had a bankruptcy attorney who told me that a victim of identity theft came to him and said, "Can I just file bankruptcy? I am the victim of identity theft. I just want to file bankruptcy and of course, the answer is never do that because that's going to ruin your credit for the next ten years. So, again, you you know, you may think, I just want the easy way out. I don't want to have to deal with this. I just want it out. But that, that doesn't answer it. I just want to introduce you again. We are speaking with a, a real hero for victims of crime. We're speaking with the director of National Crime Victim Bar Association, Jeff Dion, who has really been a champion of crime victims' rights for two decades and he he himself has been an advocate since his own sister was killed and his own problems that he had as a victim of crime so let let me ask you a lot of people say gee you know i can't i've been a victim of identity theft or i've been a victim of some other crime i don't even have the money for an attorney what do you say to them when they ask you about that how do i how do i afford a lawyer?
3: The good news is is that most of these cases are going to be handled on a contingency basis, uh, which means the lawyer, rather than paying the attorney an, an hourly fee for his or her services, that they will get a portion of whatever is recovered. Uh, so a victim should never hesitate to talk with an attorney um, simply because they don't have the money, because most of the attorneys will handle these cases on a contingency basis. Now, if, if a, I always tell victims if you go to see an attorney, and that attorney uh, is uh, either asks you for money upfront for expenses, then I would keep going through uh, other attorneys. And, and talk to another one until you find someone that doesn't. Because an attorney that's asking you for money up front for expenses in a case like this, it usually means that they might not have the resources to litigate the case themselves, which would be a cause for concern. Or maybe they can't see where the liability is, and they're not that convinced about the strength of the case. Again, that should be a cause for concern. You know, oftentimes these... Uh, legal cases and lawsuits are they're often like a Rubik's cube and you have to look at it and say okay can I figure out how to solve this puzzle and if you have and you want to make sure you have an attorney who has the experience in doing these cases that says I've seen this before I know what we need to do to get justice for this victim because other times some attorneys might say yeah I think I could do that but they don't really have the experience to do it and it's so that's why it's very important Uh, for victims to be good consumers and ask a lot of questions. Have you done a case like this before? What's your experience in this area? And just like seeing a doctor, always get a second opinion. And because you want to, one, find an attorney that thinks they're willing to take your case and can help, but, two, you want to find someone that you're comfortable working with because only you can decide who's right for you.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So we're speaking with Jeff Dion, who has championed crime victims' rights for more than two decades, and he's coming to us all the way from Washington, D.C. You know, we've been reading recently about the new proposal for the uh, National Con- uh, Financial Consumer Commission, or I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I have the right Wording, but instead of the Federal Trade Commission to set up a Consumer Financial Commission that would really help with a lot of these issues, not only of identity theft, but all these loans that people got into and all these problems that that consumers have with the financial industry. What, what are your thoughts about that?
3: I think we absolutely need to have more consumer protections in place. Uh, because consumers operate at a disadvantage, uh, and there needs to be some oversight. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of good work that's being done right now by the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and people who are victims of identity theft should certainly report that to the Federal Trade Commission, and they can go on their website at ftc.gov, because the Federal Trade Commission maintains a database that uh, law enforcement agencies use, and... uh, Usually, identity theft—it's sort of like eating potato chips. It usually there's usually not just one, and the criminals keep going after multiple people. And if we, if law enforcement can help uh, figure out those connections that all of these cases are related, then you've got a much better chance of having that case prosecuted and trying to get some justice. It's often very difficult, you know. Uh, being a victim of identity theft and, and losing 1000 or $2,000, that's a lot of money to me. It's a lot of money to you and the average person. But as you look at the grand scheme of things, oftentimes those, uh, when you're an identity theft uh, victim of that amount, for it's difficult for the criminal justice system or sometimes even civil lawyers to look at that and say, oh, that's significant enough that it's going to be worth the, the trouble of an economic expense of filing a lawsuit. But if we can find people grouped together with others, uh, then all of a sudden it becomes more worthwhile. But there certainly needs to be more uh, consumer protections at every level and more consumer education uh, for people to understand what the risks are uh, so that they can try and make some uh, some better choices about protecting their identity and their financial health.
2: Exactly. You know, just recently, my daughter who is in college here at the University of California, Irvine, she was talking to me about the fact that we do not have education in the high schools or even in the lower grades or even even in college, unless you're taking economics to understand about your credit report, about your credit score, about how to handle your finances and what does it mean to you if you, for example, go in your uh, think that your debit card is that you think that there's money in your account and you you run your debit card because it says to you amount available and it's not really in there and that you're going to get huge fees of thirty five dollars or something for a for a five dollar charge. So I think you're. You're absolutely right. We need education, and we don't have that education. The adults don't understand the, the dangers of a debit card, and neither do the students understand the, the dangers. What, is there anything that, that you all are doing about trying to get more education for consumers?
3: Well, we usually come into the picture after the crime has occurred
1: right. and,
3: and help people figure out that, the system and what they need to do. Um, so we are, while we are certainly supportive of those efforts, that's not something that we're directly involved in. But when someone has been a victim, they often find themselves in a very complex bureaucracy. And there's, you know, it's not just one place you can go and, okay, this person's going to help me. I've reported it and I don't need to worry about it. Usually there's all sorts of different places you need to call. You need to report the identity theft to the police. You need to report it to the Federal Trade Commission. You need to talk with each one of your creditors. You need to call the credit reporting agencies.
2: And you, and you need to write to all the credit reporting agencies and the creditors. It's, it's a ton of writing, right?
3: That's correct. And one of the most important things that victims can do when they're in this situation is to keep a log and make sure they keep a log of everyone they've talked to, what that person's name was, what they told them. Keep a copy of every letter that they've sent, every letter that they get in response, um, because that's building that paper trail can help show that you've done everything within your power to correct this problem. Uh, and that if, someone, if someone else steps in to try and help you, like an attorney or the police, All of that information that you've pulled together is going to be very beneficial to them.
2: And they need to send every letter return receipt requested because I got to tell you, Jeff, I help a lot of clients resolve their identity theft issues with banks and with various credit card companies. And I got to tell you, for some reason, the head doesn't know what the tail is. So, for example, a credit card company may have offices in several different states, and you think you're writing to the a proper fraud department but somehow they don't mark it down that you sent it and they'll say we never received that letter so you must send return receipt requested and keep that return receipt because they're going to tell you we never got that letter
3: oh and we see that all the time as a matter of fact there was a uh, a leading case against a credit reporting agency under the Fair Credit Reporting Act was exactly that, where a victim sent letters from the police documenting the identity theft, and the credit reporting agency said, oh, we didn't get it, send it again. He sent it again, return receipt, and they said, oh, we can't find it. And they just sort of kept giving him the runaround, and because of that, he was denied credit, couldn't get a loan to build an an addition on his home, and the credit reporting agency was held liable because they weren't in compliance with the law. And I think it's very important, that uh, credit reporting agencies and banks and uh, other financial institutions, you know most of them have fraud departments now, but it 's really important that they have a robust anti fraud program, that they have sufficient numbers of people working these cases, uh, because what it really does is it can help limit the losses that the financial institution will suffer. But what I've heard from some people who work within the industry is that oftentimes the fraud departments are there just to make sure they have one. They're not really well connected. They're not well staffed. And the people that they're staffed with um, don't have the necessary expertise to provide customer service to victims about everything that they need to do or even to help track down where the fraud is occurring.
2: Right. And I've, I've also spoken with fraud investigators and in companies, and they told me, and some of them were, were friends of mine that used to be in law enforcement that go in as fraud investigators. And right now with the economy, the way it is, they're laying off like crazy because it's not a profit center. So they have just huge files on their desk, and of course they're overloaded, they have a short fuse, they don't want to be bothered, and it's a real problem, it's a a real problem that people will try and deal with the fraud department, so you have to be persistent, you have to put everything in writing, you have to memorialize every conversation, which is really a problem, But, but when you do, that's going to help the attorneys who are going to be willing to take your case, isn't that correct?
3: Absolutely. Uh, You need to be a good advocate for yourself. You need to be assertive. You need to not give up. You need to be polite and professional, but you need to be persistent and to, to keep going back to get the information that you're entitled to. And the more you can... Build that paper trail and have the documents together, the easier it's going to be for the attorney to look at this and say, OK, I think you've done everything you need to. And the actions of the bank or the credit reporting agency um, you know, are not in compliance uh, with the statute. And I think we've got a good case.
2: Right. Now, for creditors, um, there's a lot of times that the banks are really at fault. And by the way, if you're listening to this, even though um, you you know who the creditor is, maybe that issued the fraud account. You still have to dispute it with the credit bureaus first, and then also with the credit report uh, with the credit card companies as well. And that's because if you don't, you lose some of your rights with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Isn't that true too?
3: That's right. They uh, if they don't t- take advantage of the uh, the opportunities that they have to object to that. Uh, that charge or that fraudulent charge, uh, they're often said to um, to waive their rights.
2: Right. And we don't want them to do that. So you have to make sure that you write to the credit bureaus and tell them that this is fraudulent. They must, you know, block this information and then also write to the creditors. What happens, though, um, with some of these lawsuits against these creditors? How how um, effective has that been for Victims to sue the creditors who issue credit without really verifying who that person is has that been getting better because I know it never used to be too great.
3: Yes, it is becoming better because the courts are recognizing what a serious problem it is. And that uh, in this technological age and in the way our economy works now, uh, that it is a central component uh, to someone's uh, being able to exist in, uh, in, in our economy. And so that's why they're recognizing the importance of the protections that need to be in place. And uh, so we are seeing more and more uh, creditors who basically you know, don't follow their own procedures uh, that are being held liable when they extend credit. And because it's not just them that's losing the money, as you've pointed out, it is the victim who's having their, uh, their credit ruined. And so then they're unable to get credit, and oftentimes unable uh, to get a job. And that will, uh, and recognizing the impact on the victim, which is why we have to hold those creditors responsible as well.
2: Right. So how do you go about finding an attorney? Uh, is, does, does your website have referrals for that as well? Well,
3: what people can do, they can call our helpline at the National Center for Victims of Crime at one 800 C A L L and that's 1-800-394-2255. And our toll-free helpline is open from uh, 8:30 a.m. to 8:30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, Monday through Friday, and you can say I'm a victim of identity theft. And we can help you figure out what you need to do, what resources might be available in your area, um, and uh, also refer you to attorneys who do those types of cases. And you can talk with, and uh, usually you can talk with an attorney um, at no cost. They're happy to consult and, and, and listen to your case and give you some advice on, well, based on what you've told me, um, you might have a case, or I don't think you have a case, or this is the part that's missing. Uh, and you really want to go to someone who can ask the right questions. Questions uh, to be able to figure out what's going to be the best option for you.
2: And what about what else have you got on your website that might be helpful to our listeners?
3: Um, at the National Center for Victims of Crime at ncvc org, uh, we have all sorts of information bulletins uh, about uh, identity theft, about steps that they can take to uh, uh, to. Mitigate the damages and stop it from getting any worse uh, about what types of remedies might be available to them. Uh, And when you call us, we can also refer you uh, to other groups that might be able to help. I know the National Consumer Attorneys uh, Association is doing more and more work with victims of fraud and identity theft, trying to help them sort through uh, those problems.
2: How about victims of other types of crimes? I, mean, I think people listening who are uh, university students maybe have been raped, God forbid. But there have been many other types of crimes. What about those people? what What have you got for them? Do you have any any kinds of help uh, on your website for them or we referrals? Do. There's, yes?
3: uh, there's information. You know, as you mentioned, college students often young people are at particular risk for criminal victimization. Uh, because oftentimes they don't realize that the things that are happening to them are a crime. And if they do realize that, they often don't know where to go for help. Um, uh, stalking is a huge problem, uh, but some people might think, oh, it's annoying. Is, is anybody going to believe me? And um, so, but it's really important that if you're have been a victim of stalking, and stalking happens, it's a stalking is a pattern of behavior where someone, places you in fear, either in fear of death or bodily injury or sexual assault. And if someone is making you afraid, then you should report that uh, to the authorities. And you want to start building a, uh, uh, building a trail uh, because we often know that stalking often escalates into other things. It escalates into assaults. It escalates into uh, sexual assaults uh, and even homicide. But once that homicide takes place or that sexual assault takes place, that's what the police focus on, and then they forget about the stalking behavior. But if we focus on stalking, we can oftentimes prevent those other crimes from occurring. People who call our helpline or visit our website can be directed to the services that are available in their community. There are over, we refer to over 15,000 local victim service organizations, whether you need a rape crisis center, a battered women's shelter, a support group, advocacy within the criminal system, information on what your rights are, you can call us and we can help point you in the right direction. Uh, crime can be very isolating. People think, oh, nobody else feels this way or uh, because people oftentimes don't are un- uncomfortable talking about criminal victimization. And So when you don't hear your friends talking about it, then you think this hasn't happened to them. And we can tell you, you're not alone. And we're here to help, and we can let you know that you have rights, that you'll be heard, and we can put you in touch with people in your local community uh, who are trained to help you and get you through this situation.
2: Right. So, when you talk about the victim witness program, why don't you explain that a little bit to my audience so that they understand? Sure.
3: And you know, in every, just about every. Prosecutor's office, and in many police departments and sheriff's uh, offices, there is a victim witness coordinator or a victim advocate. And that's someone whose job it is uh, to uh, help provide information to victims, you know, just like criminals have rights victims have rights under the law, too. And they're there to tell victims what their rights are and what services are available and sort of help guide them through this very complex and confusing process. The, um, under the Federal Victims of Crime Act, which has been around for about 25 years, um, money that is paid uh, in federal fines and penalties goes into a great big pot. And then the federal government will uh, distribute that to the states, based on a formula, and states take that money, and then they will make grants to your local prosecutor's office, your local police department, to help provide funding to make sure that there are victim advocates uh, uh, there in the department. And it's important to uh, to reach out and make find the victim advocate, uh, because they're the person who oftentimes holds the key and can help explain to you this very complex and confusing situation. And... Uh, victim advocates can also help point you to the other services that are available that might help you. They can explain crime victim compensation. They can tell you whether or not what you have to do to make a claim for restitution. They can point you to Uh, counselors and mental health therapists that have experience uh, with helping people in a similar situation to yours. Uh, It's almost like I tell people, think of a victim advocate almost as like a justice concierge. Uh, They can help you make the connections and figure out what's available for you.
2: Right, because so many times the DA who is prosecuting this case is so busy in working on that that they really can't be an advocate for the victim. And that's why it's so important, because I know a lot of times people feel like the the prosecutor didn't even call me. It's really important that you get in touch with a victim advocate who can help you to do a victim impact statement or something else that you can do to feel like you're part of the system, because otherwise you get lost in the shuffle. Let me ask you another thing. What what do you think about the process of the victim offender mediation? Do, Do you think much of that?
3: Victim-offender mediation has some potential to reduce recidivism and keep offenders from committing more crimes. The most important thing about victim-offender mediation is that both sides, both the victim and the offender, want to participate in it. It cannot be anything that can be imposed. Sometimes judges say, all right, I want to make you go to victim offender mediation. And to make a a victim of uh, sexual assault or robbery sit down at a table across from the person who violated them can be very traumatic for that victim. So no one should ever be forced into it. Um, But oftentimes there are particular types of crimes where it can be helpful. Oftentimes, it's helpful with juvenile perpetrators, with property crimes, to help offenders recognize that they didn't just uh, steal a car; uh, they did something that really had an impact on another person, and helps them understand uh, the the full impact of their actions and the consequences of it, and maybe help develop their empathy for other people. So there is some some limited uh, benefit in certain types of crimes, but again as long as it is, uh, uh,
2: voluntary. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, I want you to just give your website again. You have a sub, several websites so that people can go and get the information. You have been such a hero really from just a childhood from being 14 and going on to, to really making a difference to help so many other people. So we think you are terrific, but give your website and also give your toll free number again, before we go.
3: Okay, the National Center for Victims of Crime can be found on the Internet at www.ncvc.org. And that's NCVC for National Center of Victims Crime. And or you can call us toll free at 1-800-FYICALL. That's one 800 2255 and our helpline is open from 8:30 uh, a.m. to 8:30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, Monday through Friday.
2: Right. and they can write you emails as well, correct?
3: That's right. And you can um, uh, send an email to um, uh, info at NCVC.org or get help at NCVC.org.
2: And they can also find out more if they are law students here on the campus, or they're lawyers, or anyone else listening. That's right.
3: We have for attorneys, we have lots of resources available, and you can uh, visit the National Center for uh, the National Crime Victim Bar Association at Victim
2: well, Jeff Dion, you are wonderful, a wonderful director of the National Crime Victim Bar Association. We appreciate all the great work that you're doing, and we will make sure to refer people to get some help from you. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Mar. I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah,
2: terrific. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. And also visit our website at KUCI.org privacypiracy And there you can listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts. You can see our upcoming guests, their bios and their photos. And please write us emails about what you want to know about privacy in the information age. Thank you and good night. Stay private. Good night.
3: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.
2: Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and today we are so thrilled to have Captain Dave Wilson with us. He is the division commander for the Orange County Sheriff's Department's Safe Division, and he's been with the department 27 years. Thank you so much for joining us, Dave.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Maria. I appreciate the opportunity.
2: Well, tell us what is the Safe Division.
0: The SAFE division is a new division formed at the direction of the sheriff and the undersheriff. The uh, sheriff, when she took office, had specific goals in mind for our organization, and this is one of them. And SAFE, uh, the acronym, stands for Strategy, Accountability, Focus, and Evaluation.
2: Well, tell us, uh, what are some of your objectives?
0: Basically, what we are is we're professional and sworn staff working together on uh, policies and procedures, compliance issues. We're also structured part of the organism, or the components of the division, our workers' compensation, risk management, and our statistical tracking and reporting unit, uh, which is formerly a crime analysis unit, but we're going to expand their role a little bit. And as far as our objectives, we're going to review and revise as necessary, our policies and procedures, our rules and regulations, and the end to that is that we're going to provide enhanced accountability for all levels of our organization, of the department, both the you know, the professional staff and the sworn staff.
2: Just perfect quality, right? Exactly. Okay, just give the website, and then we'll get you back next week.
0: All righty. Um, we will have a safe link fairly soon on our, our standard department website, which is www.ocsd dot o-r-g and under uh divisions you'll be able to see safe s-a-f-e and uh you can click on that link and see what we've got going on because we've got a few things planned
2: oh we know it's going to be great dave thank you so much we'll have you back next week
0: alrighty thank you Mari.